Hello and welcome to Lab Notes, your weekly dose of inspiring innovation. Our guest today has a career that spans both industries and continents. Born in the UK in the aftermath of World War II and subsequently educated in South Africa in the midst of apartheid, Chris Gilby's early life had its fair share of challenges. Yet they also fostered an entrepreneurial spirit that has seen Chris work well beyond the bounds of his engineering qualifications to take up careers as diverse as leather making, music production, consultancy, and now as the founder and CEO of Imagine Intelligent Materials, a university spin-out focused on realising the promise of graphene. Chris is also the current chairman of the Australian Graphene Industry Association and an Order of Australian medalist recognising his charitable work in the Australian music industry. It's a pleasure to have him on the show. So Chris, thanks for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure. So yeah, here at the Innovation Campus today, but this isn't your usual home. Uh, where is it that you spend most of your time? Well, I try to spend most of my time at home in Bury. Uh, but uh, I spend a lot of time on the road. And on the road means Melbourne, where I've got an office, Geelong, where we've got the factory, Finland, where we have a subsidiary company, and now in California, where we've just set up another company. <laughs> um, so can I take you back now? Born in the UK. Yes. Tell us a little bit about your early childhood. So I had a very ordinary childhood, came from a working to middle class uh, family where it was just after World War II. My parents were, you know, had to uh, figure out how to uh, survive financially. We had rationing when I was a little kid, so you didn't get a whole load of food at that time. You know, I remember when I, one of my early childhood memories is going with my mum to the chemist shop to get the regular once a week bottle of orange juice. That was a medicine bottle of orange juice that was provided to parents of young children to make sure they got enough vitamin C and didn't get rickets. So it was pretty hard scrabble sort of uh, life. And uh, so my parents were true battlers. They talk about battlers now. There's very few real battlers now in, in a Western economy. And about the age of high school in your teenage years, you then shifted to Cape Town. That's right. How was that cultural change? Oh, was a massive change. My parents, uh, oh, my father got a job there. I was always keen on traveling and uh, <clears throat> so we uh, went to South Africa and I went to high school there and subsequently to university there and yes it was a total cultural shift in so many in so many ways and and it, it was uh, you know there are a lot of things that happen to you that really do shape the way that you view life and uh, the things that you remember are the things that are unusual in your life, not the things that happen regularly and without fail. It's all of those events that are different and uh, alarming, surprising, emotionally charging. These are the things that shape your memories. And toward the latter part of your life, all you've got left is memories, really. So you want to have as many as possible. Wonderful. So, I mean, I guess that time in South Africa is particularly charged from racial divide. Was this yes. pre-apartheid or was apartheid in full no. swing at that stage? No, it was in full swing. It was one of the reasons I left South Africa. Uh, you know, I was at that age where I was becoming 
socially and politically aware and uh, I was and oh I'll tell you a quick story and so I learned this much much later at one point in time I went to university I was a kind of uh, somewhat uh, I was an activist but I was an activist mainly because I've just always bucked authority so I went to university one day wearing one black tennis shoe and one white tennis shoe my dad said to me before I left the house in the morning he said what are you doing and he said I'm proving I said I'm proving that white and black can coexist and he said you bloody idiot and I went off to university he went to work 30 years later I was having dinner with my parents and my mother's cousin who was in his 80s in Sydney and my dad said do you remember that time out of the blue do you remember that time where when you went to university blah 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 I said yes he said did I ever tell you about being visited by the Secret Service I said no what was that all about he said they came and saw me in my office and they said do you want to see your son again and I of course said yes and they said well you should tell him to mend his ways otherwise he may disappear just wearing different colored shoes yeah that's right and I said but you never bloody told me and he said of course I didn't if I'd have told you you'd have kept on doing it so, so I left you I left South Africa because I disagreed radically with apartheid um, so you had been studying a bachelor of engineering but then returned to the UK and fell in with a music scene if you don't mind I've got a little track to play for you who built the temple to the mine who made the book a cover who is the father of mankind would you believe my mother who gave me So that was uh, the band Kate, of which you were a member in the late 60s. That's right. That's right. So tell us how that came to be. Bachelor of Engineering, just going back to the UK? Well, I, uh, I did engineering, uh, really not because I truly wanted to do engineering. I did engineering because my father told me that, I, that becoming a, going into the music business was not an option. And uh, <clears throat> so... I did uh, engineering because it seemed like a good idea at the time and I thought well I might be able to use this if I produce records and so forth but I really had this passion for music and I wanted to write songs produce um, produce records and ended up doing that so there you go so the, the band itself Kate only lasted a couple of years but your music industry career was much more substantial um, you, you went from there, um, it seems like the next thing on your actual agenda was founding a leather fashion brand. Ah, oh, yes, Wolf. I did do that. I did that. Can You've you done us, your research. Can yeah. you tell us what Wolf was about? Well, it was um, a band broke up. I needed to figure out how to make some money. And uh, I had a girlfriend who said, uh, why, don't we start, why don't we get into the clothing business? And I went, oh, oh okay. And it was kind of like, I had no idea. And then I started uh, designing clothes and uh, basically 
you know, deconstructed garments and went, ah, this is an engineering problem. All I need to do is to figure out how to design patterns. And then I started buying uh, you know, suede and leather and making garments, designing. And then Twiggy came along some and discovered uh, one of my designs in a shop and and uh, there was a photo shoot and uh, that was great and suddenly it was kind of visible however it was pretty it was really kind of very uh, surprising to me because I thought I don't really know how to do this I know how to play the guitar I know how to write songs I don't really know how to design clothes I'm just a fake so I, I suppose it was at that point in time I thought I've got to get on with doing what I really want to do, which was music. And then I came to Australia and became reasonably successful. Upon landing in Australia in 1973, Chris joined Albert Productions, managing iconic Australian bands including ACDC, John Paul Young and The Angels. Chris's work ethic and musical chops not only helped these bands succeed, but also built his reputation throughout the industry. By the mid-1970s, Chris was Vice President at Albert, and by 1979 he was picked up by another production house, ATV Northern, to become their new Managing Director. By the early 80s, Chris had built up enough experience and connections to strike out on his own, forming a joint venture with the American music powerhouse MCA Records. It was here that Chris spent most of the 80s, not only fostering talented young Australian musicians, but also working on a charity to support disadvantaged youth. It was for this work that Chris was ultimately awarded an Order of Australia, and we'll pick up the story again when I ask Chris to reflect on that honour. Well, while I, when I actually, when I came back to run ATV Northern Songs, I'd been in the UK and I'd gone to a charity lunch in the UK and uh, I came back here and went you know that charity lunch I went to that's um, that was really important and during that period people employed to do the things that I did had fantastic expense accounts and this was uh, this was before FBT in this country and um, you know I'd go and see a band and get a limo and uh, travel first class and live in a first class way. But I said to a bunch of my colleagues, I said, you know, we have this wonderful life and our artists, the bands that we're involved in, they're, they're kids and a lot of them will never have this sort of a life. We need to give back. We've got a responsibility to the community. And so we initiated a charity lunch, which then became a charity and a foundation and raised and continues to raise a considerable amount of money that goes to disadvantaged uh, uh, kids, principally. And so that was really the reason I got the uh, Order of Australia. Must be a source of great pride. Um, you know, there's no... Pride goeth before a fall. There's no need to be proud about anything. I think it is more a matter, and I say this really truthfully, I think it is... Uh, awareness that one needs to be a part of a community and to give back is much more important than any single event that one may initiate or participate in. 
if I can create an example and motivate others to do things that are useful, I think that's a pretty, pretty good thing. Absolutely. So fast forward a little bit. In, in 2000s, just after the Y2K, founded an internet radio station, Big Fat Radio. Big Fat Radio was when the tech wreck uh, took place. Very hard to raise, raise capital. It must have been, I believe, around about the end of 1999 that we had to shutter Big Fat Radio because uh, I couldn't raise any more cash. Late, late technology then. Uh, yes. Uh, so you were hired as the new CEO of an existing company there. That's right, and that was actually because of Big Fat Radio. So the one of the investors in Big Fat Radio, when we closed that business, uh, he said to me, uh, "I've got a, I've got a gig for you." <clears throat> I said, "Oh, well, that was pretty good." I thought, "Geez, I've just lost this guy a million bucks, and he's got a job for me." Well, that's a that's an amazing thing. So I went in and consulted for uh, Lake Technology, and after a while. I called this guy who was a director of the company and said, uh, and said, look, I've really got to, uh, I've got to resign from this. And he said, why? I said, because this company is going to go under and uh, I don't want to be just another, another way for the company to bleed cash. So, you know, you really need to uh, staunch the bleeding, stop paying me and uh, solve the problems. And the biggest problem is that the guy who's the managing director is really, he's, he's not focused on the business. He's focused on inventing things. You've got to make money. So he said, can you have that conversation with the chairman of the company? And I said, sure, which I did. And then the chairman, Russ Ingersoll, said, uh, this is all very well, but are you are you prepared to actually get your hands dirty and fix the problem? Or are you just going to uh, be a consultant and describe it, right? And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, why don't you become CEO? And I said, well, I don't need to be CEO. You, you, you've already got a managing director. All you need to do is tell him to take advice and to, to respond. And he said, it's too late for that. I fired his ass yesterday. So I said, oh, okay, well, in that case, sure, I'll take it on. So for my sins, I, I got that uh, job. And then, as he said, I had to get my hands dirty instead of, just, um, instead of just observe. And what was really interesting about that was that it took me really back into serious engineering, working with a group of people that were some of the brightest signals processing engineers in Australia, perhaps globally. Yeah, so about four years into that journey, uh, you got a call from Dolby Labs. Well, it wasn't uh, just a call. We uh, That was an engineered exit for the company. And uh, I spent that time working toward getting that done. That was the goal the day that I started, sell the company to Dolby. Took a bit longer to do than I'd hoped, but we got there. So yeah, I, I wonder if you can talk us through that process a little bit. I think several of our listeners will probably be interested in how you structure an exit. Well, there were some, there are some aspects of this I'm not going to get into, but what we did was to shape the way that Lake looked to replicate Dolby. Uh, so num number one, we had a hardware group and we also had a 
software group and I formed them into two divisions essentially to replicate the way that Dolby's overall business ran, which was a consumer licensing business and a, and a professional hardware business. So essentially uh, we replicated that. But the thing that was, I think, got us there was that I, I sat down with my key guys and said to them, look, what we've got to do, I believe, is we've got to look at what's going to happen in the future and we've got to position ourselves uh, to be, uh, to understand that we cannot do these things accidentally. And so we sat down and we looked at all of the people in the audio technology space, every company, and we created a matrix of trajectories of those businesses as much as we could understand. Uh, what were they doing in terms of quality of products? What were their price points? What were their target customers? How were they growing, declining in various quadrants of price, technology, etc., etc.? That led us to be able to quite simply and visually communicate to Dolby where we saw their competitors going and the point in time at which they would be seriously attacked. And the premise that we uh, put forward, we're going to develop products that will act at this point in time that will attack your competitors. And so they looked at this and they went, ah, you're going to create an attack brand. Yeah, that's right. Then they came back to me and they said, well, we think this is a very good strategy. The thing that we have a problem with is that if you're successful, the next thing you'll attack is us. So we're going to have to buy you. I said, oh, what a great idea. Following the sale of Lake Technology, Chris briefly worked as a manager with Dolby's International Division. But it didn't take long for the entrepreneurial itch to return. Over the next five years, he co-founded multiple businesses across online publishing, consultancy, and even a foray into tracking music across social media at a time when MySpace was still a platform of choice. Ultimately, Chris landed in the academic world, when in 2009, he took up a position as the entrepreneur-in-residence for a collaborative research program called the ARC Center of Excellence in Electromaterials Science, known more commonly by the acronym ASIS. I asked Chris how it felt to arrive as an outsider to the world of science and academia. So I knew nothing about what electromaterial science was when I took on that that uh, role. Yeah, so I just wanted to ask you, there's not too many former music executives in this world. Um, do you think that the outsider perspective helped in dealing with the academics and negotiating with the university? I think that what I did back in the old days in music and what I did when I joined ACES and what I do now are all pretty much the same thing. It's about identifying talent and putting great talent together and giving them direction. And if you get it right, you get remarkable results. You know, when you look around and you look at the people who are the really visible embodiments of this, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, they do that. They create a reason for talent to work together and inspire them to deliver. And um, I try to do the same. 
So you found yourself some intellectual property and graphene synthesis and graphene yep. processing yep. and founded a company originally called Nanocarbon and later rebranded to Imagine Intelligent Materials, which now produces geotextiles. Seems like from the outside, the company's going from strength to strength, building international relationships with that company. You're working in Finland, across to the US and Australia. Yeah, no, it's getting there, but you know, it's hungry for capital. And what I think we're doing in this business is something that is unique and in turn and I think there are aspects of what we are working on that really are going to be world changing one of the things that we're doing in the company what we have really developed is uh, a way to create very large-scale surface sensing using graphene and that I believe is going to be very important uh, but it's not just performing the the function of sensing in this case, it's the ability to put together a variety of technologies and solutions together with a business model and an understanding of a need in the marketplace and it's weaving together all of these things. That's complicated, but being able to do this and getting paid, that's the goal at the end of the day. Now. The graphene component, you know, graphene, which is where we started this business, graphene's a remarkable material. But even though it may be a remarkable material, the projections for the value of the graphene market globally have remained the same for the last four years. Uh, the projections by markets and markets is that in 2020, the global graphene market will be worth about 278 million US dollars, 278 million. It's nothing. It's chicken feed. What's important is not how much graphene as a material is worth. It's when graphene becomes a part of a composite material and delivers new functionality to that material. What's that material worth? And then when you take that a little bit further and you go, it's not just about what that material is worth, it's about what it enables you to do beyond just the, the fundamental functions of the material. It's what's the business model that you can wrap around all of that. And so what we've developed is, uh, you know, there's a software as a service business model and we have created a materials as a service model. And that becomes interesting then, because very frankly, some of the things that we're doing, the meeting I'm going to go to as soon as I leave here is to work on developing a set of solutions for a problem that exists globally that I think is worth trillions of dollars a year. It's uh, not insubstantial. Before we let Chris go to get on to his next meeting, we wanted to ask him what sort of advice he had for entrepreneurs and particularly people who are looking to commercialise their research. Here's what he had to say. Number one, nobody should have a free ride. So all the people who work for my current business, everybody's a shareholder and they're not shareholders because they've received a bunch of options. They're shareholders because they purchased shares in the company. So they've got skin in the game. 
And I believe having real financial skin in the game is essential to get a business away. You've got to have everybody aligned with a objective of creating success. So that's one thing. The other thing, thing is that you are constantly raising capital in a startup and you have to understand the absolute imperatives of that and it and it's critical that you that you conquer all of the fears of asking people to invest and and just face up to the fact that if you have a belief in the thing that you're doing that you should not be embarrassed to ask your friends and family to pony up with some cash and put it into the business because the truth is that you're giving them an opportunity to share in the upside and there's uh, the other thing is you've got to find a customer as rapidly as possible and delivering on time on budget for your customer and then there's one other thing if you're founding a business or investing in a business that doesn't have a vision to become a billion dollar asset, you're wasting your time. Because the time that you invest in anything is so valuable that if you're investing your time into something that's only going to make a small amount of money, it's just not worth it. You've got to be looking at building businesses that have really great significance, both financially and socially. That's my view. And you've got to have also do something that you're going to have a huge amount of fun doing because your life is really short. You better be having as much fun as you can. Well, that's all the science we can fit into Lab Notes this week. We hope you enjoyed it. If you're keen to hear more inspiring stories of innovation, check out our back catalogue and subscribe to the channel so new episodes can appear on your device once a week. Lab Notes is produced by Eon Labs in collaboration with Rennie Digital. You can find links to both of those organisations, along with our guest's biography, the papers we discuss, and more in the description below. Our music is sourced from Purple Planet Music and mixed by Nat Harris. I'm your host, Dr. Leo Stevens. Until next week, keep inventing.